Well, Psalm 8, if you've got your Bible ready, I'm going to read uh, that to us. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we're making our way through a number of Psalms in the summer. And we're taking a, a, particular, a particular look at these Psalms. The Psalms that we're working through are all Psalms that help us see Jesus. Now, we believe that, that this is God's word to us. And actually, we can find Jesus on every page in Scripture. He is all the way through. This is his Story. We don't need to wait until the incarnation or the New Testament to learn about Jesus and to see who he is. He was there right at the beginning. Right when we read Genesis chapter 1, that was God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit coming together and creating all that we enjoy today. And in the Psalms, these poems, these songs written hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ came and put on human flesh, we can see Jesus. We can see aspects of his character, aspects of of his work and we're just making our way through some of these psalms that help us see Jesus and this afternoon we're in psalm 8 I'm going to read it to us this was originally written as a song I'm not going to sing it to us only because there's no uh, music if there was music maybe I'd give it a go but just imagine this uh, spoken as a poem or sung as a psalm written by King David the title is this how majestic is your name O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me just pray for us again. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these words are for us, that they are true, they are good for us. We believe that that these words are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so as we hear from you, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would change us. You would maybe give sight to those who can't see spiritually this afternoon, that you would strengthen those who are weak, that you would change us and conform us more into the glorious image of your son. And it's to him that we look. It's to him that we listen and long to hear this afternoon. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, those of you who know me, and you probably don't need to know me particularly well to know this, will know that I have a particular fascination with the moon. It's my screensaver on my phone. I know I should have a picture of Elizabeth or the kids, but I don't. I have a picture of the moon because there is something about the moon that I find particularly enchanting. Like one of... My favourite things to do, apart from date night with Elizabeth or time with the kids, if I was on my own, I'd just go and sit in a loft, have the skylight open, and if it was a, a particularly nice evening, a clear evening, I'd just star watch. I'd just watch the stars and, and just gaze for a little bit. And if it's a really nice, clear, bright evening, I'll just gaze at the moon. I love it. There's just something about it which fascinates me. And Johnny's with me. Anyone else? Any other moon lovers? Yeah, there's a few of us. I'm not the only weirdo. There we go. But I love it. And, and uh, to my excitement, in a couple of years' time, 
NASA are going to send up astronauts again to walk on the moon. Isn't that amazing? Like, we'll be able to look at it and maybe not see the people, but imagine there are people actually walking on that uh, uh, not a star, is it? On that thing, the moon, while we're down here. <laughs> and um, it's been, it will be almost 50 years since humanity lasted. That 1969 was the first time that man walked on the moon, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped foot on on the moon and it was a a spectacular feat of human ingenuity so somewhere near half um half a million people worldwide came together for the apollo space missions Uh, almost in today's money at 250 billion pounds a quarter of a trillion pounds was spent on the space missions to launch these men up into space to walk on the moon and it was at that point in time, the most incredible feat that humanity had ever accomplished together. Coming together and, and pooling their resources and, and new science was created, new maths was created, new materials were created to put these guys on the moon together. And it really was the height of ingenuity. It showed our power as a human race, our strength, our intelligence, our wisdom, our innovation, our creativity as a human race. And yet it's interesting, as the space capsule started to re-enter or approach Earth after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had walked on the moon, as they started to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, just before they came in, Buzz Aldrin gave a broadcast and it went live across the world. And he could have said anything. You know, how great are we as a human race? Look at what we've accomplished together. But what he chose to do was to read these verses from Psalm Psalm 8 verse 4 and 5 he reads this when I look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for here's what Buzz Aldrin was concluding Despite, despite the power and the wisdom and the resources of humanity despite how how strong and amazing we might think that we are One look at the moon or one look at a starry night reminds us of how insignificant we should be. Like we are just dots. Against a starry landscape, like we're less than dots. Like we should be so insignificant. Like we're a little bit like, you know the Mona Lisa? Which is meant to be the perfect picture of of, of what a person looks like. Like, we're a little bit like the tree in the background. Some of you didn't even know there was a tree in the background of the Moe Lisa. There is. Just these insignificant brushstrokes of green in the background of a beautiful picture. Like, we should be so insignificant, folks. Dots in a starry landscape. Smudges in the back of a beautiful portrait. And yet that isn't how God sees us. And that isn't how he engages with us. Let me just say this as we start our way through this beautiful song. Jesus Christ, who created us, who was there at the beginning, with the Father and the Spirit creating all that we can see. Jesus Christ, who created us, created us with dignity. He created you with dignity. 
And I'm speaking to all of us in this room. I know there are some Christians here. There are some of us who aren't Christians. He created you with dignity. And he looks on you because he made you. And do you know what he thinks? Wow. You are amazing. He looks on humanity and he thinks and he believes that we are amazing. And there are some of us, as we come into this room this afternoon, who have convinced ourselves, either because we believe what we hear and we speak to ourselves when we look in the mirror or hear that little voice inside our head, or we listen to the world around us who tries to form us and tell us to be a certain type of person. There are some of us who have come in here this afternoon and we've convinced ourselves and we believe that we are just dull brushstrokes, insignificant dots. But God sees you and treats you with even more (coughs) value than the most beautiful galaxies. (coughs) Verse 3 and 4 that Buzz Aldrin read out in his broadcast. They're right at the heart of Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 has this literary feature in it that you see a a lot in ancient writings. Now bear with me, I'm going to give us an English lesson. 60 seconds max, just bear with me, you'll be okay. In a lot of ancient writings, you'd find just different literary features to help really drive the main points of of the scripture or the teaching or the song or the poem. And in Psalm 8, you have this feature called a chiasm. And the chiasm looks a bit like this. You throw it up for us, Karis. It looks like a pyramid. And what you have in a pyramid or a mountain is you have something going on at the bottom and then something going on in the middle. And then it reaches a a high point or a a crescendo or a, a climax at the top. And the way that they would, they would piece together their writings to really reinforce a central point was they would, they would have a couple of arguments, one at the start, one at the end, almost at the base of the pyramid, the base of the mountain, and then a, a, another argument that would be quite similar, a little bit further up the mountain or a little bit further up the pyramid, and then there'd be a central message right in the middle of the song, right in the middle of the poem, right in the middle of whatever it was that was written. And the writer structures his writing in order to get us to the top. They want to get us to the climax, get us to the high point, get us to the central message that they're trying to teach. And what we see at the heart of this poem is verse three and four. This question. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all of the beauty in creation. When I look at what you've made, God, what are we? Like, why would you be mindful of us? When we look at the starry landscapes, when we look at the Mona Lisa, when we look at the the big waves that we were talking about before that just tower over you, when we look at the might and the strength and the glory and the beauty of creation, God, why would you even think of us? Why would you be mindful of us? Why would you even care for us? That's where he's trying to get us to. The top of the mountain, the The climax of the pyramid there. And the way that they do it is they build us up as they go. So starting at the foot of the mountain there or the bottom of the pyramid, we see the same argument made at the start and the end of the psalm. If you look down, you'll see in verse 1 and verse 9, exactly the same thing repeated. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he's, he's trying to bring us in step by step. You get that? So we're starting at the start and the end and we're going to get closer and closer to the middle. And the first thing he wants us to see is that God's name is majestic. God's name is majestic in all the earth. Now, majesty is one of those words that we don't really use that often, do we? 
But majesty really is a word that is used to describe people or things that are matchless in their strength and matchless in their beauty. That's what it means. Majesty is to be is to be unchallenged in strength and unchallenged in beauty. So maybe the only time that we would use it in our context is when we go and visit the king. Anyone done that? No. But if we did go and see the king, we wouldn't just go in and shake Charlie's hand and say, oh, how are you doing, mate? Or good to see you. Like we would say, it's good to see you, your majesty. And we say your majesty because King Charles is probably going to be the most powerful people, the most powerful person that we've met. And, you know, we could undo all the stuff around him, but he is, in the country, he is the most powerful person in this country. He is matchless in his strength and in his power, but also he's matchless in his beauty. Now, bear with me. All right, he's not, he is not the best looking of guys, but I'm not talking about his physical beauty. I'm talking about if you went to visit him in the palace, like it wouldn't be like going into a student digs, would it? Okay, you'd, you'd walk into the palace and you would see ornate pictures on the wall. And you'd see jewels all around, priceless jewels and gold. And you'd see your majesty seated probably on a throne in fine robes, the best of clothes, no expense spared. He'd be in a place of grandeur. Because he's majestic. He's matchless in his strength and matchless in his beauty. And King David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic. In other words, you are matchless in your strength and you are matchless in your beauty. And he doesn't kind of put him amongst King Charles and other kings. What does he say? How majestic is your name in all the earth. Like he's elevating him up here. Above all kings, above all powers, above all principalities. That's where God sits. The strength and the beauty of the Lord is matchless on earth. And David shows us why as he moves us up the pyramid. Again, the next step up, we see a mirrored theme on both sides as we move closer into the middle of the psalm. Firstly, in in the second half of verse 1 and then verse 2, we read this. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. You set your glory above the heavens. David is having a moon moment, but like I would have. He's looking around and he's seeing, seeing the beauty in creation, the, the power in creation, the glory in creation. The bigness of creation and David is being reminded of his smallness and reminded of the bigness and the power of the one who created it all. He's seen the majesty, the strength and beauty of God in a cosmic scale as he looks out in creation. But then he also sees the majesty, the strength and the beauty of God in the tiniest of creations. In babies, in infants. God places the galaxies where they are. He holds the stars in their place. And then David says he also uses babies and infants to overcome his enemies. And the idea here is that God uses the weak to defeat the strong. And that's always how God works. He shows his majesty. He shows his his matchless strength in using things that are so weak to conquer the things that are so strong. And David knows this from his own experience. 
You might know the story of David and Goliath. You've heard of that? Here's David as a young man, face to face with literally a giant. Goliath is towering over him. And Goliath is, is clad in, in scaly armor, like impenetrable armor and a, and a huge sword. And Goliath has, has all these terrible armies behind him. And here is little David, a shepherd boy with no armor and a, and a terrified army behind him. And just a fistful of stones. Who wins? David. Well, David knows, and we know that he knows because he reflects back on it. He knows that it isn't him that defeats Goliath. It isn't his strength that defeats Goliath. In fact, the whole thing is orchestrated by God so that God's people would see they can do nothing without him. But also that God delights to use the weak, to work through the weak, to defeat those who see him strong. God works through his people, his weak people, to show his majesty, to show his strength, and to show his beauty. And we see it, how he uses fragile and often broken people like David, like you and I, to bring about his purposes. On the other side of the pyramid, this this theme that's reflected in verse 5 and 8, we see David talking about how God has placed humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings. And he's crowned us with glory and honour. And then he's given us a purpose to rule over creation. So on this side of the mountain, we, we, we see that David is amazed really that God would use babies and infants to, to accomplish his works. Those who are weak and frail to accomplish his works. And then he sees the same on the other side. David is amazed, as we should be, that God would use weak, finite, broken men and women like you and I. And that he would place them a little lower than heavenly beings. And that he would crown them with honour and dignity. See folks, in a godless world, which is how so many people live, either they reject the existence of God or they reject God and they try and live without him. In a godless world, that, that verse there doesn't exist. Like the idea of being set just a little below the heavenly beings, literally a little below God. Like that isn't how the world would function. Actually, what the world would tell us is that we are set just a little higher than animals. That's what we're taught. We're taught actually that, that, well, some people would say that human beings are animals. You know, just a little bit more intellectual. Darwinism would say that, that we're where ultimately, if we trace it all back, we're monkeys, we're apes, and we just evolved over time to be able to, to be a little bit more intellectual. Some people would say that, you know, we share half of our DNA with a banana. And, and maybe that's true, I don't know whether it is or not, but they would use that to point to the fact that we're, we just come from nature, we're just a product of nature, like we're accidents. God says no. That's not true. God says, I haven't placed you a little higher than animals. No, I've placed you a little lower than myself. Now that's a bit different. I've placed you a little bit lower than the creator of the universe. Now that's dignity, folks. That's the dignity that God gives to humanity. And apes and monkeys, they are wonderful creatures. Bananas, controversial, but they're a delicious fruit. (laughs) But you, 
You're something else. You are something else. All of us here this afternoon, we all started life as a single cell. Smaller than a grain of sand. And inside of that grain of sand was the genetic blueprint, the DNA, to, to create who you are today. The instruction manual to create the people that, that are sat in this room this afternoon. Inside that grain of sand were the instructions to create your heart, the first organ that is made as you're formed in your mother's womb. Inside that grain of sand were the, were the blueprints, the instructions to, to create your liver and your lungs. The instructions to create 10 fingers and 10 toes and 20 nails to sit on top of those fingers and those toes. Inside that little grain of sand were the instructions for how to to create eyelids. And and at six weeks, I'm sorry, 10 weeks in the womb, these eyelids are, are given instructions from this tiny little grain of sand to open. Like the instruction is actually to destroy the cells that are sealing that eyelid shut. And then as you grow again up to six months, you're able to see and and open those eyelids and close those eyelids at your commands. And inside that tiny grain of sand, that, that tiny cell are given instructions to create your brain. So you can think and you can learn and you can understand and you can relate to other people and you can love. And over time, that one cell, that tiny grain of sand multiplies and divides into 100 trillion cells to create the people that are sat in this room this afternoon. Friends, you are incredible. You are so beautiful. And you are so full of dignity. And it's not just dignity in how we are made. The Bible gives us dignity in what we were made for. In Genesis chapter 1, we read it at the start of our time together. God gives purpose for humanity. He gives us a divine job, a purpose to rule over creation, to be fruitful and to multiply and to steward the earth and all that is in it for our good and for God's Glory, dignity is given from God to us in our being, in how we are made, and in our doing, in what we were created to do. And yet, if I'd carried on reading in Genesis, we would soon get to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that this, this glorious dignity that we are created with And this glorious, dignified purpose that we are given to serve God and to submit to him and to listen to him and to be fruitful and to multiply in his presence. That glorious dignity is tainted. In Genesis chapter 3, we read how sin infiltrates humanity and strips us of our dignity and leads this beautiful tapestry of 100 trillion cells to rebel against God, to sin, to do evil and wicked and truly undignified things. And I suspect every single one of us knows that to be true as we come in this afternoon. That maybe we feel that tension of knowing that we were created for something good and something glorious and yet... We so often feel so undignified because of our sin. 
Because we have turned our back on God. Because we're trying to live our own lives and we're chasing after our own desires. Which is what makes the climax of the psalm all the more spectacular. These people who would rebel against God. Who would take his kindness, this this wonderful purpose that he has given us, this glorious image that he has created in. These people who would take from God and then turn their back on him and sin against him. And rebel against him. That God would say these verses to us should startle us. That he is mindful of us. And that he cares for us. Like, why would God do that? Why would God be mindful of fallen creatures like us? Why would he care for us? Well, he's mindful of us and he cares for us because of his majesty. Because of his matchless strength and his matchless beauty. We see the majesty of God and how he has made humanity, but we also see the beauty of God and how he acts towards us. John Piper, who's a, an author and a pastor in the States, he's writing about Psalm chapter 8 and he says this, Psalm 8 reminds us not how great humanity is, but how graced humanity is. Psalm 8 doesn't say, oh, look, look at how incredible we are. Look at how powerful we are. Look at how strong we are. Like we might draw those conclusions and see how amazing we are as creatures. But really the real purpose of Psalm 8 is to show God's kindness to us. It's to show us how much his grace falls upon his people. It's to show us that we can receive the undeserved favor of God. That's that's what grace means, that we can receive that. Even when we fall far short of what he has created us to do and who he has created us to be. And that grace, that undeserved favour, that kindness that comes from God only comes one way. It comes through Jesus. These verses, verse 3 and 4, are the climax of this song. They pop up again later in the Bible. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus comes. Jesus, who is fully God, he comes and he, he clothes himself with humanity. He is born as a fragile child into a sinful world and he grows and he lives a perfect life. And he dies for the sins of his people and he rises again and then he ascends to be with the Father. And after that, we, we have these writings of, of the followers of Jesus who, who teach us who he was and what he did. And in one of these letters, Hebrews, we read this. In Hebrews chapter two, it'll be up on the screen here. The writer says this, it has been testified somewhere. And here's our verse again from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, yet you have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now the writer is talking about Jesus, not us. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So we don't have the eyes to see all that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here's what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to show us. 
The cycle of sin. The cycle of, of indignity. That all of us are born into this world. Carrying it. It's our nature. Sin is in our nature. It's not something that we just do. It's who we are. This cycle of sin and undignified behaviour, it continues and it continues and it continues and there is no way out of it unless we see Jesus. Unless, as the Hebrews 2 shows us, we see Jesus who in becoming a man like us was made a little lower than the angels. Here is Jesus who created all things condescending, coming to live amongst us, being one made little lower than the angels. But not only that, he came as one who was willing to die for us. Willing to die for us. A sinful and rebellious people. Remember when we look at the splendor of creation, and we look at the moon and all of its shining glory, and we see all the stars on the starry night, and all of the things in creation that we enjoy and we see the beauty that is before us. The fact that Jesus would humble himself to the point of death for us should stun us. Like when we see how rebellious and selfish we are in contrast to the rest of creation, how undignified we are in our sin. Like we shouldn't be shocked if God just said, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to wipe all these people away and just do something else. Like that would be what we deserve. And yet that isn't what he did. He did the unimaginable. He came down and became one of us. He became a weak, vulnerable, fragile child who grew, who felt hunger and thirst. And it was through that child as he grew that that our great enemy, sin, Satan and death was crushed. And in suffering and dying, the most undignified of deaths for us. Because that's what the cross was, folks. The most undignified of deaths. Physically and spiritually. Like the physical torture that that Jesus undertook for us. Was undignified. Whipped and scourged. The skin on his back ripped off. Spat on, mocked, falsely accused. Ripped off of his clothes in front of his family. His his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. A crown of thorns pushed onto his brow. Fed with a sponge of wine vinegar. Crucified with, with guilty sinners. That is an undignified death. But it wasn't just undignified physically. It was undignified spiritually. Jesus became the sins of his people. He became the adulterer. He became the thief. He became the lustful person. He became the greedy. He became the idolater. He became the proud. He became all of the sins that every single one of us engage in. He became those things for his people. It was truly undignified physically and it was wholly undignified spiritually. And he did that for his people. And suffering and dying that undignified death. For us, and in rising from the grave to triumph over Satan, sin, and death, for us, Jesus fulfills the picture of dignified humanity that we see in Psalm 8. And so, rightly, he is crowned with glory and honor. And he's enthroned right now 
with all things in subject to him. And all of those who put their faith in Jesus, or as Hebrews 2 puts it, all of those who see Jesus, who have the eyes to see him for who he is, to see him as their Lord and their Saviour, to see him in his majesty, to see him as one who is matchless in his strength and matchless in his beauty. If you have the eyes to see him for, for who he is and what he has done, for all those who see Jesus in that way, we are saved from the penalty of our sin and we are united to him. The Bible says that we are found in him. We are found in Christ Jesus. And that means as the father now pours dignity onto Jesus, he pours dignity onto us. If you see Jesus as you are, friends, you are dignified because of him. You know, the world wants to strip us of our dignity. It wants to label us as just an insignificant lump of cells who are ultimately identified by our mistakes and identified by our flaws. But the gospel of Jesus speaks a better word. In Jesus, we have dignity. Through his perfect life, his death on a cross, his resurrection, he has elevated us to a place of honor that we don't belong. But in Jesus, you are magnificent. You are spectacular. He makes you right with God and he brings you into the presence of the Father. And for what he's done for us, and for who he is, for his majesty, for his matchless strength and his matchless beauty, he rightly deserves our worship and our praise.